What is up, guys? And thank you for sticking through that commercial break. We are joined by none other than the man who does research over at the Bitcoin layer, my fellow attic dweller at his mother's house, but currently coming to us live from the 7-Eleven internet provided to him for free for his slushy, Joe Consorti. What is up, man? We're chilling. Chris says that I'm good. Hey, can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay now. Okay, fantastic. We're going to go, but honestly, for our audience, this is the moment that we told you to be prepared for. Have those tomatoes on hand and feel free to just chuck them at Joe. We have pickles, yeah. pickles 4K, which yeah, is better comments. than pickles. He's saying I'm fine, bro. Yeah, pickles 4K is saying that Joe is in tune and on time. Q, I think the space cakes you ate in preparation for Amsterdam, they're hitting it. They're, they're, they're affecting you right now. Just stay cool. Dude, I Joe and I are here for you. We're going to talk about the, the larger economic environment, and we're going to be okay. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. So as p we're going to do a nice, fun little macro update with you. But first, if I can find what I find far more interesting is you and Nick went down the rabbit hole of, oh, my God, why can I not the time value of the Lightning Network? So I'll let you set the stage of like what it is you guys are trying to figure out here and why, because this was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So to back way, 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 way up, like 2018, before I was even into Bitcoin, right around the time that I got this shirt, I think, was Nick originally published a series of Medium articles before he did layered money way for all of that, that we're talking about basically like a Bitcoin capital market that could have been made possible through a reference rate, right? You know, a, 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 an interest rate that is, you know, derived that other you know, entities use to borrow and lend against. And the one that was derived through the Lightning Network, right? Parking your liquidity in a channel and then earning a rate of return on that. And if some way we could widely report a rate of return that you can capture from a lightning channel, then that could be used as a reference rate, right? People could take a look at that and say, okay, I'm going to lend to you because, you know, your credit history isn't as great as another guy at, you know, a higher spread to, let's say, you know, the United States government, right? And, and that's sort of the idea that Nick set forth in 2018. Since then, a lot has changed, <clears throat> especially in the lightning network landscape, where now not only do we have an example of a widely published interest rate, which is on, on Magma, which is basically a, a lightning liquidity marketplace, but it also opens up the floodgates for a lightning network derived yield curve. Because the cool thing about this marketplace, not to, to get too far ahead before I, you know, I'm just setting the stage here. Basically on this liquidity marketplace, you can lease channel liquidity for a predetermined period of time. Now, what a yield curve is, you're plotting different maturities of a fixed income instrument, like a U.S. Treasury, through time, right? You're plotting them, again, you know, basically through time and then all their yields. And obviously through time, it's, it's more risky. You're exposed to higher interest rate risk. And so a higher return on your capital is demanded. And so basically on a yield curve, you know, let's say a three-month U.S. Treasury is what? It's, you know, two and a half percent right now versus a 30 year, which would demand a higher interest rate. That's the idea that wasn't possible in the Lightning Network because you could pull channel liquidity from any channel at any time. And so like standardizing a contract or standardizing, okay, if you park your money here for this amount of time, here's what you'll get was impossible. But with Magma, they have basically minimum lease times where you could take now now there's a time attached to an interest rate right and that could open the floodgates to something like a, a lightning derived yield curve now why this is important is because and i promise i'll stop rambling but this is this is sort of the kicker is because 
there are what 900 trillion dollars of, of liquidity global global asset value right and you know with bitcoin right now having a widely published interest rate is one thing but having a yield curve and showing market participants who have hundreds hundreds of millions billions of dollars that they can park their liquidity inside a lightning channel for a given period of time and earn a set rate that's huge, right? In terms of attracting market participants and making the Lightning Network something that's more efficient, pushing Bitcoin towards more so global capital market status, right? We're, we're not at the same level as, you know, something like United States dollar denominated, you know, bonds, right? It's something like $10 trillion in those versus 10 million or something like that in the Lightning Network. I could be off, but it's, it's, it's two nice round numbers. But needless to say, the Lightning Network needs basically a widely reported reference rate. So market participants can see that they can park their liquidity in a lightning channel or on something like leasing out their liquidity and they could earn a yield on that. They can, you know, for, for corporate financing or, or what have you, that incurs less overall risk, less overall risk profile than something like a corporate bond, right? So that's basically the first half of the time value of lightning network. That's, those are sort of the advancements towards a widely published interest rate that we've seen in the last four years. That was the idea behind writing it. And, uh, and yeah, no, I'm excited to have to chat more about it. Cool. Let's, let's unpack that. Cause there's a lot there to unpack. And first I want to attack this a little bit. It feels to me, there's a degree in which you are reintroducing almost a credit rating system by showing which channels are more credit worthy than others. Why, why do we need this and why, and like, what is what is the ultimate goal in introducing or reintroducing this credit rating system now into the Bitcoin system? Good Wait, question. sorry. Is this about channels or about nodes? Channels, because that's okay. where the, yeah, that's where you park liquidity. I mean, individual node operators can run several channels. So I guess in theory, you would you would basically have like a reputation profile based on an individual node. Um, instead yeah, of like a, a channel's history. One quick correction real quick before I dive into that answer, because it's, it's a really good question. There's actually $100 million in the Lightning Network and $100 trillion in dollar-denominated bonds and equities. So just to make that clear for, for listeners, if they thought either of those numbers were wicked low. But yeah, no, there is a hot... Basically, in any form of lending, lenders need to know the risk profile of the person they're lending to. And obviously, in something like Bitcoin, you know, everybody's equal on the base layer. But... When you get into actual, you know, lending of liquidity, you know, and this, this can be done in, in a far lower overall aggregate risk profile than something like a corporate bond, right? You know, you incur a lot of counterparty risk when you have, you know, when you're lending to a corporation, you incur far less counterparty risk. Let's say, you know, you, you set up lightning, you know, in a channel or you're, you know, you're lending in multi-sig or, or any of these different things, Bitcoin as a whole, uh, you know, the Bitcoin and lightning networks together, they incur less overall risk than the traditional, you know, United States dollar capital market. So basically a risk curve is necessary for lenders to see, okay, I can incur, you know, I can get, you know, let's say three and a half percent, 4% if I, you know, off, if I lend to somebody off chain, because that's obviously the riskiest you could possibly do is completely off the Bitcoin network. Or, you know, I could earn 3%, right? You're sacrificing one and a half percent, but you're doing this lightning channel liquidity lease, which incurs, you know, no default risk because you could, you could, you know, close the channel at any time. And, you know, obviously you incur risks native to the lightning network, you know, hot wallet risk, all these other things, 
But as a whole, you know, you're not lending to a corporation where, you know, somebody may not want to buy your bond on a secondary market and you're stuck with something that's plummeting in value. You can't resell and you're getting barely any coupon off of it. So, so as a whole, that's the idea. I mean, you know, we, we talk about, you know, in Bitcoin, people are perceived as equal. You know, anybody, literally anybody can use the base chain to transact with one another. But when it gets into, you know, borrow and lend, borrowing and lending for financing, just like a traditional capital market, you know, there, there, there does have to be some form of, uh, of assessing risk profiles of different market participants uh, in order for it to flourish. So I apologize. I have not looked into this in, in depth yet, but I'm still kind of hung up on the idea of why are we talking about specific channels versus like nodes as a whole? And I guess are these analyses being, being is, is part of the kind of analysis compared to the risk of just a normal lightning channel opening? Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So I could be conflating the language there, but the reason I'm sort of interchanging the two is because it varies, right? You know, at the bottom of your risk curve, you have cold storage Bitcoin, and then you have something like the Lightning Network reference rate, which is derived entirely at the node level. Nodes have to report the rate of return that they capture on their channel. And that's theoretical. That hasn't happened yet. Got it. Okay. Okay. At least widely and reported. And then, you know, the, the further you move up the curve, the reason I, I'm using the, the channel language is because on Magma, on this channel liquidity marketplace, that's what you're actually leasing from somebody. You're leasing not a node, but a, a specific channel. channel. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, yeah, runs. That uh, absolutely wanna, makes sense. Before we dive into the Magma of it, though, I, I want to spend some time on sort of the, the risk return curve that you guys introduced. I think, though, what I want to really get a better sense of is, is sort of, let, let's talk this out. So we have on the risk return curve, what you guys have sort of created. Talk to us about sort of what is the least risky to the most risky. And let's on each one of these sort of stop and explore them before just everything. Go. For sure. I love it. Oh, and before we dive into it, by the way, this is not monster energy. This is water just for you. Please, you know, for I hate you so much. No, I'll water. be completely I honest, dude. Like I showed it to the office at Bitcoin Magazine HQ and the refrigerator is full of yerba mate, mate, mate whatever, because I guess Dylan LeClaire has infested, mate, infested Duke's freaking mind, as well as all these damn Red Bulls and all the LaCroix, whatever the hell, however you pronounce it. I, I like making fun of it. So I just want a Gatorade, man. Give me my sugar and water. Dude, Gatorades, Gatorades are way too filling. This gets you going. But anyway, anyway, this is an absolute, absolute classic. Yerba Mates too. Disgusting. Up, in, up in Vermont, that's like what everybody, you know, at, at least three or four of those every single day. Not me. Not I me. hear Dylan LeClaire is just like the Yerba Mate just dealer up in Vermont. Like it all funnels through him. He buys cases of it at a time. Then he's the main point of distribution. True or false? Good Lord. That's, I mean, I, 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 I did see a pretty big fridge last I, I went to his last apartment. So won't, won't verify, won't deny, but you know, wouldn't be off the table, I guess. So yeah, with this risk curve, basically the first point, the, the point at the very, very bottom, the reason that it's here. And, and again, for people who are wondering what we're talking about, you know, a risk curve is a way of illustrating the risk of different vehicles to park your wealth in a capital market. And as we go up this risk curve, I'll explain what the equivalent is to today's capital, you know, United States dollar equivalent. So at the very bottom, you have the non, and it's a way you basically, the way you do this is you plot the, the risk 
of an instrument versus the return. Risk on the x-axis, return on the y-axis, and as you move up, you have diminishing marginal returns. You take on an outsized amount of risk for a slightly more amount of return. And so at the very bottom, you've got cold storage Bitcoin, right, which is non-yielding, right? You don't earn any native yield on your Bitcoin if you're holding it in cold storage. It's non-custodial, right, if you're holding it on your own and it is counterparty free, right? You know, it's an asset that is in somebody else's liability, which is really what you want in your money. Oh, fantastic. You got the, I, I love the screenshot app on Windows. You pull those up really quickly. But yeah, as you can see here at the very, very bottom and, uh, and P or Q, if you wanna pull up the second version of the graphic too, that one's a little bit more detailed, it's uh, about three quarters of the way down, but we'll talk about this one for now. So cold storage Bitcoin is non-yielding, non-custodial, right? And it's counterparty free. So no default risk with cold storage Bitcoin, right? You know, could it be in that safe directly behind me? Of course not. That's just to throw people off. So my live appearances, they think if I break into Joe's office, I can steal all this Bitcoin, but it's not really in there. That's a, that's a farce. And so you don't have counterparty risk, right? And you don't have custodial risk. This is exactly the same as physical gold in its risk profile based on its risk profile, right? You know, a lot of people don't like to make the analogy a lot of people do like to make the analogy when introducing people, and it's helpful here as well, because if we think of physical gold, you know, really, uh, again, it has the lowest overall risk profile. The next thing up on the rung for, you know, a, a United States dollar risk curve would be a United States treasury. And of course, we've never defaulted on our debt in a major way. If you lend to the United States government, they're not going to explicitly default on you. They'll implicitly default on you through printing into oblivion, but they won't explicitly default on you. And so with something like the United States Treasury, you still have slightly higher risk than with physical gold. So cold storage Bitcoin incurs the least, the lowest overall risk profile, just like physical gold does. And basically plotting these against one another and sort of showing the equivalent in the United States dollar capital market was just to sort of A, B it so people could could more easily understand. But yeah, that's the, that's the first point on the risk curve. So can I ask... I just want to jump in and ask, you know, when we talk about the, the Lightning Network reference rate, one of the things that immediately occurs to me is that the, the specific strategy that one uses when one is, you know, creating channels and basically managing liquidity across time has a massive, massive effect on what your return per channel is. So this is basically just a, like, an average across all existing Lightning networks, is that correct? So, so yeah, in theory, that's what it would entail. There are basically what it would be is nodes would volunteer their information. So nodes would volunteer their APR, and then that would all get aggregated and averaged. The way you would do this is still up for debate, right? There's, there's nothing like this in practice. You know, through time, I anticipate that this will, this will come about. It's actually odd. We got the next rung up the risk curve before we got the Lightning Network reference rate. So we have like a Lightning adjacent reference rate that is derived from leasing channel liquidity, but we don't have one that's actually aggregated from like native node data. That would require, you know, external coordination and then, you know, aggregation and publishing by some entity, you know, whether it be like a, a group, some sort of cabal of, of nodes, that's essentially what the, the LNRR would look like in theory. And again, like the reason we keep writing about this and the reason I made it a point to include in here is because one day that's going to be pretty major, you know, LNRR, we tend to think of 
sort of the equivalent to the United States Treasury, like almost, almost, almost risk free. It's called risk free. It's what people use as their primary reference rate, but it's not exactly risk free, right? Unlike physical gold in, in cold storage Bitcoin. So what? let's define what these risks are in comparison to the cold storage, as well as what then are the greater opportunities for return. Because as in the in the previous image that we just saw, the LNRR is the next sort of step up above Bitcoin and cold storage, which like with this, I mean, I think the risks are pretty well documented. It, it, or are you saying it's useful to our audience to basically just have those reiterated really quickly? Probably the latter. We'll go with the latter. Yeah. So. So a couple of different things that, that are posed as a risk when you're operating a lightning node and you have cha a channel or several channels is hot wallet risk, right? You know, let's say I, I have access to my channel and it's open on some, like the, 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 the password to it, how to access it, you know, or the node itself is open on one of my computers or my phone, phone gets stolen, computer gets stolen or hacked into in some way, then those funds could just immediately be swept from the channel, right? So... That is one risk. Inactive, there's there's also inactive peer risk and forced closure risk. And both of these kind of go kind of go hand in hand. Inact, you know, if you have an inactive peer on the lightning network, remember channels are between two lightning network participants, two lightning network nodes. And so, you know, if you have an inactive peer that, you know, won't settle up the channel, then your funds are locked in that channel, right? You can't settle up on the main Bitcoin blockchain. And this isn't even so much as a risk as it is like an inconvenience because eventually, you know you can close out that channel. It just takes a certain amount of time. And so really the, the, the biggest risk with operating lightning channel to, to me would be hot wallet risk, right? Just, just that security aspect of it, you know, not getting fished and, and you know, somebody stealing your funds and sweeping the funds from the channel. That's the biggest present risk. And, and I'm sort of reaching when I say like inactive peer risk, forced closure risk, those two are, are risks because, you know, ultimately you, you get your funds back anyway. The, the reason, but, it, and it just no, goes- sorry. Yeah, Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Can we define inactive risk? Obviously, means users are not there. The counterparty is no longer there. They're no longer a part of this transaction. What is what was the second one you said? Forced closure risk. So, so same deal. The channel just gets closed. You'd, you'd still have access to your funds, but you know the the channel, every single one of its connections would no longer be there, which is an inconvenience, right? If you're like a big proprietor of Lightning Network channels and connections, like let's say River Financial, they I'd say they're the pretty they're they're one of the most robust sort of entities that routes transactions. If they had like a, a massive string of forced channel closures, that would be you know a, a not not a risk to their business. They have other facets of cash flows, but it would just be a major inconvenience to their business because all these different relationships in the night, Lightning Network would, would be severed with that. So, yeah, that's that's sort of what all of the risks are. And again, so, I'll say for any for any lightning network aficionados who are listening, I'm more of a, a traditional finance individual trying to project these sort of analogies onto the lightning network. I'm in no way, shape or form a, a node running or channel operating expert. If you have any issues with anything discussed, P is the person who is taking your side of these God arguments. Damn it. And and Joe and I are the I am I am biting the sides of my cheeks to be like, all right, like look, this is a this is a rabbit hole. Do not drag us down into the technical bullshit. We're, we're going down a rabbit hole that people that are far more technically inclined and and thoughtful 
most likely may not agree with a lot of things that we're discussing or even exploring here. And that's totally fair. You are entitled to not listen to this if that is, if you don't think that these are viable solutions. No, 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 no. We're but, trying to understand what's going on here. Totally. I do think there is also, there's growing viability that unfortunately, whether or not you want this to be the case, this is not something that I want. But when you see something like BlackRock's deal with Coinbase and you see Fidelity getting more involved with Bitcoin and 401ks, these traditional banking models and entities will reappear in Bitcoin, whether or not we want them to. And so there is, I think, utmost importance for us to dissect these things and really be critical of them in order to allow us, allow our voice to be the presenting sort of entity and ideas behind Bitcoin-oriented financial anything. That's just Wait. my, otherwise it gets co-opted by the Fidelities and the BlackRocks, and then they just give us these reports and tell us, this is how it's going to work now, because Wait, we right. have the money to move the market out. I way. don't think anyone is, I mean, I'm certainly not arguing the other oh, side. No, I'm just, I'm literally fighting against myself right now. Okay. That, that's what I wanted to be clear. <laughs> I was like, I'm a crazy person who just wait, fought wait, with wait, myself. Because I mean, like everyone in this conversation is a super good actor. Like we're all trying to understand like how Bitcoin works ultimately, how the Lightning Network fits into that within the scope of this conversation and all that stuff. So I, I feel like asking the questions that Joe is asking is always a good thing. Like, I, you know, oh. I think. To, to some degree, we're all charlatans, but, but you're right. Yeah. Q. Q more than any of us. Ah, come on now. Over time, lightning banks, like lightning banks will emerge, you know, because people just lack the technical wherewithal to be able to like officially so you're, operate. You're jumping like, like 45 minutes into my conversation with you. I'm Stop. So sorry. Stop. I love you though. Keep going. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Uh, keep no, going, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So, so like with these traditional entities entering Bitcoin, you know, it, it is an obscene amount of liquidity. BlackRock has $10 trillion assets under management, but also they're like a huge shadow bank. And, you know, Larry thinks a character. I won't say anything in case, you know, I, you know, my house gets hit or whatever. But, you know, th this, th these people aren't necessarily, you know, of the highest moral order. But again, they do have $10 trillion assets under management. So that, you know, a portion of that liquidity now can enter Bitcoin. And so, you know, it's, it's this, it's this tug of war and, you know, you're right. We do have to like have conversations about the implications of this stuff. So all of a sudden, you know, our, you know, we, we leave our Bitcoin in, in a hot wall and our funds get swept by Larry Fink and his goons. Gotta be careful. Not a serious question, but who would you rather be your Supreme leader? Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, or Larry Fink? Okay. Let's, let's weigh the, let's weigh the options here. Gee, I think Larry Fink, because you have like, you, you, you get to play pretend that you're living freely. I get to play pretend I'm not being monitored all the time. Like, even though I know for a fact that this camera is always on and recording everything I do, because the Patriot Act definitely is still a thing. We're still getting recorded all that. So like you, with Larry Fink, you get to play pretend like it's, you know, you're, you're living freely. With Xi Jinping, you don't even get to play pretend, you know what I mean?
I guess. I mean, look, full disclosure, you've been ha- you've been DMing a Persian man way too much to not think that you are now like under legit watch by the NSA. So full disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to more serious stuff. So on the other side, the return. I just want to fully establish we have had this conversation on the show before, before our audience members who may not be fully aware. If you open up a lightning channel, guess what? Those fees, you do get a cut of that. What I mean, mind you, we also established that like in order to like really make money here, you have to be routing a lot, a lot of fees. So realistically, is this a risk reward? And and let, let's just go around. What is the risk reward ratio here? Is this a reward profile that's worth the risk that we have established? We'll start with you, Joe. I'd say, yeah, in the, in the way that it currently exists, yes. If you had a whole bunch of, because the barrier to entry is lower now than it's going to be, in my opinion. Like, I believe Lightning Network, with the, the functionality we just discussed of widely published reference rates, paving the way for huge bank-like entities to, 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 to come into the game and earn this yield, you know, that is, it's going to be inherently more difficult for somebody like myself, who does not have trillions of dollars in, in all of this technical wherewithal, to manage channels efficiently. So right now, I think it's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty attractive risk to reward profile. But as more market participants come into the Lightning Network, as you see that capacity tick up, and it becomes more enticing to run a channel, run several channels, run a node, and route these transactions optimally to, to capture fees, then it's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more risky for somebody like the average market participant to, to do something like that. I feel as of right now, though, it's pretty attractive. You know, we're, we're still in the very infantile stages of, of all of this playing out. At this current level of risk reward that we're talking, do you feel like the reward profile is worth the risk of an LNRR? I'm going to answer a slightly different question, I think, which is basically, is the risk, should one run a lightning node, I think is what you're kind of asking? More more or less, yeah, without literally making it that. Well, I think think the reason I ask is because I think, I think, the strategy changes. Like for me, you know, me and a bunch of people, about 20 of us got together and started Plebnet, which, you know, grew into this large thing. I actually, I haven't been super dialed in on it lately. I don't know what the current stats are, but there was a period where like we were the single largest group that were bringing people in into the Lightning Network. And when I say bringing people in, I mean like bringing plebs in because we were just like, we want to learn how Lightning works. We want to run our own nodes. We want to understand the, like, the, 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 the nitty gritty aspect of what it takes to run a Lightning Node. And, you know, when we talk about the Lightning Network overall, I would, I kind of think of it as like, there's three different categories of users. There's like people who are like, I just want to be able to send sats fast and for no fees or for low, very low fees. And for those people, like you can use lightning today through like blue wallet or, you know, moon wallet, which is what one that we recommend a lot. That's M U U N. And there, you know, you don't have to like take custody of your lightning channels and all that stuff. You can just basically use the lightning network and it's fucking awesome. Then there's people who are like, I want to, I want to be a merchant. I want to accept funds via lightning. I want to say Bitcoin via lightning. And then there's, there's tools like, you know, Breeze wallet lets you basically like, you know, you have like a little point of sale system and you can take money. Again, the advantage is it's very, very rapid final settlement and the fees are very, very low. And then there's people who are like, and again, I'm talking about plebs at the extreme end of the spectrum who are like totally nuts and are like, I want to understand how the deep, deep, nuances of this incredible life-changing technology. I want to run my own like telecom switchboard, which is basically what it means to run your own lightning node as an individual, right? 
And that's super fun. And for me, it's always been really, really engaging because it's basically like a real-time strategy game. Like I used to be obsessed with StarCraft. And for me, being able to go in every morning and like check all the, 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 the liquidity on all my channels and then, you know, balance my channels through circular payments and all this other shit, that was really fun for me. But I want to be very clear that when we're talking about this stuff, you can use the Lightning Network and have no idea what's happening on the back end and just be able to have very rapid payments for basically no fees. And that works today as of right now. The reason I say all this is because I think your question was like, does it make sense to kind of like run a lightning node right now? And I think it's very important when you're asking that question to frame it as like, are we talking about a single individual who is interested in, you know, benefiting the lightning network and learning more about their own sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Or are we talking about an entity who is trying to make money running a lightning node. Now you can make money as an individual, but it takes a lot of effort, right? And you're not probably going to make that much money yourself. So I think that if there are certainly economic niches that one can occupy as a business, and there are even economic niches that one can occupy as an individual, but I don't think that the average person should get into the lightning network right now, running their own nodes, expecting to make a significant amount of sats per unit time. Almost like the original question, which was framed as, is the reward profile of this amount of risk worth it? To P's answer, no for individuals. Well, I, I would, I would count- answer my own question. <laughs> it, was, it was important because I did not. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I think that, so when, when the Lightning Network was first like really gaining traction, people love to like post on Twitter, like hashtag reckless. Because it was like, you know, like, hey, we're, we're fucking bleeding edge shit. Like, who knows? And I certainly lost funds learning how Lightning worked because I just like, you know, locked it up. I fucked up my channel openings, fucked up my channel closing. But we're not in that world anymore. The Lightning Network has matured dramatically since then. And it is 100% possible to lose funds on the Lightning Network by accidentally fucking something up. But the educational materials are so, so, so much more mature. So I actually wouldn't put it as a as a risk reward in terms of like, you know, where your funds could be allocated if not in the Lightning Network, right? Because I think when you're talking about risk reward, it's like you have to talk about opportunity cost. You're you're raising your eyes up as if you're like, Jesus Christ, he is not answering my fucking question. Is that is that fair? I, I'll be fully honest, man. This office space is just too distracting to do the show from. Yeah, Q has... Q has his face in like fucking like Megatron style TV that's like just like outside of his eye line. So he's looking at his own reaction and it's it's horrible for him. That's extremely I I would not like that at all. Dude, what happened to doing the show from your mom's basement? My mom's attic is working just fine, dude. I, I routed this Ethernet cable 150 feet. Look, I'm in I'm in you fucking did it. My my landlord tried to raise the rent and I'm in deep negotiations right now with my landlord on the your insane mom. amount. Yes, my it's mom tried to raise the rent on me. Well, okay. hey, I mean, there's always this office space that you can sleep in. Okay, wait, wait. Jumping all the way back, though. Joe, I'm, cur- I'm curious what you think here. When we talk about risk-reward profile, the ROI of an individual is always going to be very different from the ROI of a business. And I think as an individual, the like most individuals are not viewing it from the perspective of like, how much could I be making if I was loaning my Bitcoin out or doing something else instead? And I think 
that factors into it. Tell me if I'm totally butchering that, Joe. No, you're, you're 100% on it because as of right now, we already rely on intermediaries with expertise to facilitate our payments. And this idea that every single aspect of a Bitcoin lightning denominated economy would be decentralized is silly. Personally, that's what I believe. Okay. And with something like the Lightning Network, you're exactly right. Individuals care about it, not because, you know, little Timmy living in Botswana right now, who is, you know, his under intense political strife cares about earning yield on his $5 that he parks in the Lightning Network. He cares about being able to transact, right, over the Lightning Network and not be not be censored and do it in a way that is extremely low fee compared to the Bitcoin the main chain. So that's the idea, you know, for individuals, it matters less because what they're focused on, what they use the Lightning Network for is the Lightning Network's utility. And that's sending Bitcoin, right? Not on the, the main chain that's that's secure, that's like moving, you know, moving gold bars on a tank, but more like, you know, verifiably taking those representations of Bitcoin and then transacting them infinite amount of times across this network before finally setting settling up. That's what the individual cares about. This this entire piece is more so for large bank-like entities who have a lot of capital to deploy for corporations who want to raise funds in some way and are looking to you know, experiment in, in new ways and potentially be first movers. That's basically what this publication is for. It's for you know, this, this theory of a Bitcoin lightning denominated capital market and how we could get there. And how we get there is through A, publishing a widely reported rate of return to attract a lot of collateral so market participants can buy and sell collateral to meet their meet their loan obligations and then you know eventually that spurs off into a, a full-blown bitcoin denominated capital market that's the idea you know that's what this paper is for for the average individual just using the lightning network to you know to transact they've got their bitcoin in cold storage but periodically they re-up their funds you know to their lightning wallet and just use it recreationally you're, you're gonna have little to no risk right just you know, remember your phone password, don't download any fishy things, and, and basically you'll be fine, right? It's sort of an extension of what we already do in our own lives. You know, we, we rely on a lot of intermediaries to get, you know, everyday things done. You know, I'm relying on Citizens Bank to not close off my, my credit cards, right, in order to go out and buy this water, right? And so in a Bitcoin-denominated capital market, same as today, you know, people at the individual level will rely on these people who have more technical expertise in managing lightning channels in order to facilitate these payments. That's, you know, just, just how it's going to be, right? When the, when the fishes get so big, that's, that's basically how, how, how stats are going to move across the lightning network. Just so you know, Joe, this is what water looks like. Doesn't, like some water it. comes in a can, but what does that have to do not, with anything? Oh, okay. This is a this is a reference. You to don't it. understand the beef right, that Joe right. and I have. Yeah. Neither does anyone else in this fucking chat. Everybody's like, no, I, I'm ignoring everyone else in the chat today. You guys are lovely. I love you all. Shout out the OG homies, D three four eight, Goblin Hunter, I, Gobble. I honestly, your name. I have no idea what it is. I make up a different version of it every day. I see you in the chats. I know you guys are all there. Hammersaw. Shout out to all all of uh, all of you guys who are tuning in repeatedly. All right, I want to move on to Magma. Talk to us about Joe. Just what is Magma, and like throw a throw out a comp for what exactly it is in traditional financial markets because this exists, in my opinion. It does. Yeah, it's very cool. It's it's sort of akin to you know, Magma can be thought of 
basically, you know, you're, you're lending to whenever you want a rate of return, whether you know it or not, you're lending your money to somebody and lightning magma is essentially this, this lightning liquidity marketplace where you can lease ownership of your lightning channel for a period of time and earn a rate of return on top of that. So with the lightning network, there are two, basically this is a completely separate method of generating yield with the lightning network, you're routing fees. Okay, so you have a channel and you're earning a base fee, right? On all your transactions and a fee rate. And that is your APR. That is your interest rate that you're earning. With Magma, it's basically a marketplace where you could sign in with your node. It's 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 really, really cool. Everybody should go check it out. Amboss.space slash Magma. You can browse it. You don't have to be a node operator to take a look at it. And so essentially you can lease your lightning channel liquidity, or you could buy others lightning channel liquidity for a minimum specified period of time. And that is essentially basically the, the, the way that you borrow the rate that gets determined at which you borrow has nothing to do with the lightning network itself. It, it, it is completely separate from routing transactions. The rate that you're borrowing at is actually set at the moment of sale and it's set by the person who's leasing their 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 lightning channel liquidity and so because this isn't derived as i mentioned earlier from like native node data that would have to be self-reported aggregated averaged this is more so basically magma what they do amboss they aggregate all of the aprs for that week and then they average them and they publish them. And this is basically an APR that gets determined off of a variety of proprietary factors, but it's separate from like the routing fee, the routing fee rate that you would earn on the Lightning Network itself. So it's like, it's an auxiliary Lightning Network reference, auxiliary to the Lightning Network reference rate. So in traditional finance terms, basically corporations, they borrow at a spread to something to a reference rate in 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 the case of magma this can be thought of as being a liquidity that gets leased out at an interest rate at a spread to the lightning network reference rate which is theoretical it doesn't exist yet this is not unlike a reputable company like apple borrowing at a you know 0.5 percent point five percent spread to the united states three-month treasury bill that's essentially what the equivalent is here. You know, that is what's called, you know, Apple can borrow at that rate. They borrow at US three month plus 50 basis points. This Magma APR is sort of lightning network reference rate plus however many basis points you're borrowing at based on the, the risk profile of the person who is, or, or based on your own personal rate of return that you set at time at the time of the transaction. That's essentially the, the, the comparison I would use, right? So whereas the Lightning Network reference rate is sort of the, the risk-free rate equivalent, a Lightning liquidity lease on something like Magma is sort of, it, it trades at like a, a, a basis point spread to the Lightning Network reference rate. So how does, have you looked into or included in your analysis, you know, tools like Lightning Pool, there's a few other ones that provide us, it sounds like provide a similar yeah. service to Magma. Yeah. So, so with Magma, the reason I used them was because with other providers, and you mentioned Pool, they're actually the first one to do this, I believe, yeah. have a liquidity marketplace by Lightning Labs. Unreal, absolutely very, very cool thing. They did it much earlier than Magma. With Magma, you don't actually have to have a, a node to log on and take a look at all the data. And so that's why 
this yeah. was this was sort of the, the route that I went down. But I did include in the because I, I wanted to make sure that I was using all the correct language and, and not saying that Magma was the, the very first, but they're the first widely published, right? So there isn't like a barrier to entry in terms of running a node. I, I dropped a pool by Lightning Labs and also one other thing by Lightning Labs down in the, the sources at the very bottom, just for posterity's sake. But for this analysis, I used I used Magma. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I said, I have not played around with Magma, but I do love Amboss. Jestifer is a uh, friend of the show. Awesome dude. He's fantastic. Uh, yeah, one of the creators of Amboss. Very, very patient. When I was learning all this stuff, I'd be like, hey, how does this work? And he would he would jump in and, and answer any questions I had. You know, one of the things that that's interesting about Lightning Pool, and I, I suspect that it's gotten a lot better since the last time I was trying to participate in it, which was probably over a year ago at this point. So take everything I'm seeing with a grain of salt. But, you know, the the system, like the sort of rating systems that were used to determine whether or not a person could, you know, purchase or lease liquidity were at that point fairly opaque. And they had to do with boss scores, which is something that was, you know, sort of proprietary algorithm. I wonder how Magma is doing it, or is it literally just if you have the funds, you can yeah, so Magma, they do it. it. It's it's also a proprietary thing, but it's all on their like their their Git book, right? So you can go to docs.amboss.space, and then all of this is publicly available. This is like a total treasure trove of the way that that Magma works, and basically the your ability to borrow and lend, and like the rates that you can borrow and lend at, and this is all like information that's available is aggregated into something called reputation. So like not unlike a, a traditional credit score. Like you know, credit worthiness of large borrowers, um, the the magma reputation is sort of like the magma equivalent of that, and it's twenty percent track record, thirty percent speed, and fifty percent reliability. And so those are the those are the components of this reputation score that that go into you know the the rate at which somebody can borrow and lend. Basically, you know, are you a good channel peer? Or are you not a good channel peer? Got it. So let's talk about why do we need magma? For sure. So, and not to sound like a broken record, but basically a widely published rate of return on invested capital, that's the precursor to a capital market. A capital market is, you know, basically a slew of financial instruments that people can purchase and people can sell. And that's what denominates that. That is what will push Bitcoin to a reserve currency status. The reason the United States dollar is a world reserve currency reserve is because it's not because of our military might and our prowess and how pretty Joe Biden is. It's because we have a, 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 a deep and liquid trillions of dollars capital market that has a slew of financial instruments for people to park their United States dollars in. And that is essentially the, the, the precursor to any capital market is, are there instruments that I could put my wealth in that I can capture a rate of return with, you know, if there are, I'll allocate capital towards it. Right. And that's how that, that, that burgeons and expands. And so magma is one of the, the first steps in order to making this happen. Right. We talked about lightning pool by lightning labs. There's also LN router, but magma is again, you know, another one entering the space. And this is good developments that you want to see. The more widely published rates of return you have, 
market participants can go and compare rates. They can say, do I want to park my wealth here? Do I want to park my wealth here? And that's the utility of Magma. That's that's why we need Magma. And also the, the more that that's the like grandiose, this is going to lead to a global capital market reason for Magma. The, the, the more granular reason and the actual utility of it is to secure inbound liquidity. Right. For node operators, one of the hardest things when you're just starting out a channel is securing inbound liquidity in order to route transactions. And the, the, there are several solutions for this. One of them is to use Magma and to you know lease your liquidity if you efficiently operate a channel and earn a rate of return on that. And if I was a new node operator, I could I could borrow some of that liquidity, get started. There's also with Voltage, who's a sponsor of the Bitcoin layer, they're fantastic is they just launched basically you can you can get inbound liquidity directly from vaulted right so that overcomes one of the major hurdles in starting out starting out a lightning channel but that that's the granular reason for why magma exists but the, the the big grandiose reason is that the more of these basically rates of return that are published the more market participants have the ability to compare and ostensibly you know that will lead to more and more liquidity flowing into the system if if there was no sort of you know, instrument that market participants could peruse and they had to do all their own due diligence and dive down these esoteric rabbit holes like we have, then you know, Bitcoin and Lightning wouldn't grow beyond you know, a, a certain point. At a certain point, the people and their businesses that are dedicated to creating these methods of, of earning, earning actual yield, they're the ones that are inching us closer to sort of this Bitcoin denominated global capital market. So that's the more grandiose reason for something like Magma. The more of these that exist, the closer we are to that eventual future. So I want to be, I want to be careful about how I phrase this, but ultimately like the catastrophe or the mayhem that we bore witness to earlier in 2022 was due in large part to a lot of promises about yield and I just I have to ask the question of what is necessary about this that like while we're not introducing another token, while this is to help further develop the Bitcoin layer and in turn the Lightning Network layer built on top of the base layer, how does earning yield or at least pitching it as earning yield on Bitcoin a positive thing? Because it's actual yield. We've mangled the definition of yield so much, and I want to be careful with that for the viewers. There's a distinction between yield from nowhere and yield through efficiently routing transactions. With efficiently routing transactions, you're providing a service that requires your expertise, your active channel management, your active security, you know, your your active, you know, working to 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 build robust security around it. That requires a lot of human capital. And routing fees are people paying you for that service, right? So this is this is like an actual business actually earning yield. So that's what you have over here on the Lightning Network side, right? When it comes to this yield concept that we've been that has been jammed down our throats over the last two years, over the last several years, and, and really blew up in people's faces over the last you know six months earlier this year, is not yield. What it is, is essentially, and I think I talked about this the first the first show that I was on here with you guys, but it's, it's essentially yield from nowhere, right? So yield, which used to mean, you know, you, you are investing capital and then you're earning a return on that invested capital because that capital is being used 
Now yield just means either, you know, that capital is being taken, taken and parked in extremely, extremely risky protocols, you know, like Def this DeFi stuff, Aave, SushiSwap, whatever Celsius was doing, or your yield is coming in the form of a completely worthless token that gets printed out of thin air. And the definition of yield has been so mangled. And so when people, people hear, oh, Lightning Network is a way that you could earn risk-free yield, right? It requires active channel management. It requires a lot of liquidity in order to make this profitable, right? Because you have to, you know, build these connections to actually get transactions. Because again, we're in the very early phases of this. So it's not as if it's it's yield from nowhere. There's a tremendous amount of there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into building out a profitable lightning channel and then actively managing that lightning channel and establishing new connections. And at the end of the day, the yield you're earning is from providing a service, right? You're developing expertise and building out a profitable lightning channel and people pay you for that in the form of the lightning network searching for the most profitable route for your transaction to go to so that's sort of the distinction i would draw for for the listeners there's yield from nowhere where you're parking your funds with basically you know a a, a casino essentially and they're paying back additional funds to you through creating new tokens or through taking your entire deposit and, and putting it with an extremely risky borrower. That's the distinction I would make, you know, perhaps new language, new standardized language needs to be made in order to, to draw the distinction because the, 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 the word yield has been so mangled over these last couple of months that, you know, to some degree, you, you really need to explain with Lightning Network how all of this works so people are incentivized to park their funds. You know, for the time being, it's going to be a scary prospect for a lot of people that lost tens of thousands of dollars in these in these horrible protocols that were offering promises they couldn't keep. I'm just prepping my motion for the next cult meeting of all Bitcoiners and we'll be putting forward a motion to forever remove the word yield from all Bitcoiners vocabulary once and for all. Because I think to your point, it has been co-opted to mean 5,001 different things. And unfortunately, the most recent iteration of the word yield has a very negative connotation instinctively. I mean, I'm just waiting for when Raul Rug Pauls, or I, honestly, I refuse to learn how to pronounce that man's name properly at this point. But when Rug Paul decides that, oh, the Lightning Network is my next best bet to siphon money into my pockets. Nobody won't. And why is that, P? Big. Story to time your, from our elder statesman. No, I mean, because to your point, the types of strategies that he is interested in are not actually... Effortful. Yeah, exactly. They're not effortful. They do not involve providing a service. So the, the way the Lightning Network works, to Joe's point, is that like, you provide a service to people and you and it's it's uh, as i said for me personally it's been very enjoyable to sort of like figure out like what are effective strategies and by that i mean like where do people need need liquidity where they are like where where is liquidity underserved in the lightning network right now like you basically you can go and you can find these sort of like you know isolated communities and when i say isolated i mean like they don't have significant high high value like channels to sort of these like large economic nodes and you can sort of like be the intermediary there and provide real value whereas Ralph Paul and people like that are primarily interested in basically just finding opportunities where they can I would argue take advantage of the market to make lots of money very rapidly which end up being in most cases kind of Ponzi-esque 
schemes. Yeah. So printing a token out of thin air, coming up with some sort of marketing budget from some entity, getting a whole lot of people to pile in because you have a very large platform, and then systematically dumping your money onto this newfound liquidity before you know you exit and you make a profit. That's what the name of the game is for you know some of these larger scammers, right? With the Lightning Network, um, to P's point, it does require a lot of expertise and a lot of effort, far and away beyond sort of this snake oil salesman esque methodology that that a lot of these people who have been trumpeting the the, the idea of yield that isn't really yield like to employ, right? So it's it's too effortful for some of these people to to sort of co-opt. And, you know, if they were to to be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to use this as my next way of scamming people, like in saying you're going to scam people, what are you going to do? Are you going to set up all these, you know, brand new lightning channels with with hundreds of millions of dollars of liquidity? Thanks. Like you just actually benefited users of the lightning network, you know, so, you know, it, it, it sort of dissuades people who are trying to be bad actors and and just get liquidity from unsuspecting market participants and more so attracts good natured entities you know who who are looking to 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 earn a yield through putting their expertise out providing a real service to people okay i've i've sidetracked the conversation enough we can we can go back down our proper down the proper rabbit hole and this is i think the most important part of the conversation that you guys introduced and it's the conversation around tarot joe do you want to set the stage for us Tarot's cool as hell. Tarot's cool as hell. So Tarot is an in-development protocol by Lightning Labs. I hope I use their correct vernacular when I say protocol. Again, not an expert in this. But they announced it at Bitcoin 2022. And essentially what it is, is it is a method for issuing new assets and routing them via the Bitcoin primary blockchain and Lightning as well, right? So a lot of people will take a look at that and go, oh no, shitcoin, right? There's the possibility of that, but there's also the possibility of all the world's currencies flowing through Bitcoin's liquidity, right? So leveraging the security of the main Bitcoin blockchain, right, in order to issue, send, and hold stable coins. You know, you a, a digital euro, a digital dollar running over the Bitcoin blockchain. Think of this not in our terms, because because the three of us in this call, we you know, we may not need dollars in Bitcoin in the same wallet, like actual wallet as somebody, you know, in a, in a more impoverished nation that, you know, can't withstand the volatility or something like Bitcoin, but the censorship resistance of the blockchain and the transactability of the Lightning Network is something they need, but they can't take the volatility. This circumvents that in a major way. Being a, so, so Strike has a similar business model to this, right? But with Strike, they rely on, you know, being able to basically hold dollars in Bitcoin and send dollars and somebody else receives Bitcoin, but it relies on good banking relationships in order to occur, right? You know, all of this is, is occurring on Strike's databases. With Tarot, it essentially makes that concept of holding Bitcoin and, and dollars or whatever other currency in the same wallet, and it makes it native to Bitcoin itself, and it makes it native to Lighting itself. So that's essentially what Tarot allows for. And, you know, this extends that concept of a Bitcoin denominated capital market we just talked about, because now not only are you attracting a, a crazy amount of collateral to Bitcoin with these widely, widely reported reference rate that have ostensibly lower risk profiles than traditional finance, but now you're also attracting market participants who wouldn't have otherwise invested if there wasn't like a dollar instrument on there. So now, you know, there's basically this, this opens the floodgates again, this is, you know, 
as of right now, I'm no technical expert, but you know, this would open up the floodgates for, you know, dollars, euro, yen, yuan, any, any actual, you know, fiat currency that you could think of or a stable coin representing that being held in the same wallet as Bitcoin and transacted across the Bitcoin and the lightning network. It's pretty revolutionary. And so, you know, now what would have otherwise been, you know, a rather large capital market on Bitcoin. Now you can have a Bitcoin denominated capital market that has traditional finance instruments on top of it. Right. So now you're, you're running, you're running, you know, dollar, dollar instruments, you're running Euro instruments across these, these lightning network rails across this counterparty free settlement network. I may be getting lost in the weeds, but to, to, uh, to getting a bit too excited here, but that's essentially what, what the prospect of, of this holds in, in my eyes. So let's talk about where this would then fall in comparison to things that are already, you know, full. I'm probably going to use the wrong verbiage here, but I was going to say fully flushed out like magma, for example, where does it sort of fit in this risk return and how does it sort of relate to the others as well? Yes, of course. So, you know, with, again, I'll back up to basically, you know, for people who might, might just be tuning in with a risk curve, a risk curve is visualizing the risk and return profile of like these investable vehicles within a capital market, right? Within a deep and liquid market for purchasing and selling financial instruments. Within traditional finance, you could essentially visualize that as gold being the least risky, providing zero return. U.S. Treasuries providing some return, being slightly more risky, and then corporate bonds, equities, venture capital—all of those are slightly higher up the ladder. My dog is barking outside the door. And then in Bitcoin, something like tarot would exist a little bit higher up the risk curve, not because of any inherent Lightning Network flaw, or, or you know, obviously there is more risk incurred in the Lightning Network, but with something like tarot, the variability in the risk profile and of course, what goes in line with that is the, the return demanded on that risk profile that fluctuates probably pretty wildly all in line with the credit worthiness of the asset issuer, right? When you're, when you're bar, like it, this is all theoretical in my mind. Like if you were to borrow or lend in an asset that was issued using tariff, you know, you're incurring all of the associated risk that you would with the asset issuer, depending on the asset issuer. So like if the United States government you know, they wanted to issue, they, when they were, you know, doing a treasury auction, they want to issue, you know, $1 trillion of, of you know, three-month T-bills over the Bitcoin network and, and, and try it out. Obviously, you, you know, that would incur much less risk than, you know, me if I wanted to issue a bond through tarot that was denominated in Dogecoin in order to go buy a grill or something. I don't know. Right? So, at like these tarot assets, borrowing and lending them, like in theory, they would have all the assumed risk of whoever's issuing the asset. Again, I could be totally wrong on that. I, I haven't, you know, the tarot is early in development. The, the technical wherewithal of understanding all of the documents are way over my head. But, you know, in a Bitcoin denominated capital market, you would sort of say cold storage Bitcoin incurs the least risk. Lightning Network natively operating a channel incurs slightly more risk. Uh, a liquidity lease, right? Giving your giving your liquidity to somebody else slightly more. Tarot, right? All of the different risks associated with the issuer slightly more. And then, of course, at the far end of the curve would be off-chain lending, right? So you're not getting the benefit of the security of, of Bitcoin uh, when you're lending, but you're using, let's say, the Lightning Network APR that you earn as a reference rate. 
that's basically the risk, like the, the, the theoretical future Bitcoin lightning risk curve. And I feel Terra would, would be somewhere towards the middle slash upper end of that, but it would fluctuate wildly depending on, you know, the credit worthiness of the, of the issue or the reputation rather, I think is a better word of the issue. I just want to draw attention to the fact that in this risk curve that you just spelled out at the extreme, like, yo, you fucking crazy is like, you give your Bitcoin to somebody else and then just hope that they're going to give it back to you one day, which is exactly what is presented as kind of like the standard when we talk hey, about dude, places. That, that sort of uncollateralized lending is exactly what Celsius was doing, man. Exactly. You were, you, customers were parking their funds and basically saying, all right, uh, 20% yield here, do whatever you want with it. You know, that's the far, far end of the Bitcoin risk here. I wouldn't even call it Bitcoin risk here. You know, the wider crypto in quotes risk curve. Yep. Oh, speaking of which, we were talking about a story just to take us completely off track recently around this document that was like all Celsius sort of creditors was released. And it was like thousands and thousands of names. And we were like super excited. We were like, oh shit, WEF is in here. You know, fucking Klaus getting, getting fucked up. And somebody pointed out online, fucking BTC Incorporated Bitcoin Magazine was also in this list. So I have to assume that it was basically everyone from any possible source that Celsius owed money to. So, you know, they were sponsors of B21 and B22. So I'm assuming that basically those things were not paid and then they are still still being waited on. So probably like when you when you enter bankruptcy court, not to interject, but like you grasp for like you, you have to have due diligence down to like the the atom, the atom. And so like, yeah. The, in something as interconnected as like a, a borrowing and lending system, you know, sure, pro the world financial, you know, the world economic forum probably has something to do with the way that my car, you know, is uh, <laughs> that my car loan got created, right? You know, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I haven't div do dove into the document extensively or as extensively as Dylan. He, I, I think he loves tearing through those documents more than I. Um, I'm not a big, you know, tearing into the nitty gritty granular stuff to the same degree as him, but. Absolutely crazy. Come on, guys. Quit lending to uh, quit lending to Celsius. Yeah, 100%. So, Joe, shifting slightly, what else has got you, what, what else are you focused on right now in terms of the Bitcoin ecosystem? What technological innovations, what areas of the progress that is being made has caught your attention? We've been talking about lightning a lot, but I'm curious where else you're focused. For sure. So really tarot, I think, you know, tarot sort of, it, it paves the way for, like I mentioned, it's like a broken record, but like a deep and robust market for collateral completely underwritten by the Bitcoin network and can be transacted across the Lightning network. And so that is probably like forefront of mind in terms of what I want to continue trumpeting, you know, in, in the articles that I write in the, in the sort of theoretical research that myself and Nick continue writing. That's one of the things that I'd like to explore more. I think over at Lightning Labs, they're doing some pretty remarkable stuff. They, they really are, you know, in terms of pushing us towards something like a global capital market that subsumes all the world's liquidity because you could, you know, you could hold all of your, all of your currency, basically everything you'd ever need. And, and you could have the security of the Bitcoin blockchain and you could have that transactability of the Lightning Network, right? I think Tarot right now is probably one of the least talked about things because we, we sort of, we, we already, mar everybody collectively marveled at Strike and what they were doing 
and it is absolutely you know remarkable what they're doing but essentially is is sort of an offshoot of that it's it's a very similar concept but it will be completely native to this network that you know is underwritten by an asset that when it's custodied has zero counterparty risk right it makes it completely native to bitcoin so as of right now, I'm really in terms of Bitcoin technology. I'm really watching, you know, Tarot and, and uh, to, to the best of my ability, you know, in terms of wider markets. There, there's a slew of other things that I'm taking a look at at the Bitcoin layer. You know, with Nick, one of the things that we try to do is really take a look at coin, but through a rates lens, through a macro lens, a much wider, a, a much wider view, so we can be as impartial as possible on like where Bitcoin is on this proverbial path to world reserve currency status you know what its correlations look like how responsive it is to rates because ultimately like you know the, the rates credit these are the things that run the show and and really you know i i spend a whole lot of my time monitoring those taking a look at where those are at and, and trying to you know probabilistically say what's going to happen in the near future i'm back i had to go i had to go um, confirm what p was saying I felt like the opportunity was there. And of course, everyone's on the phone. No one could confirm it. But I do believe that we, that part of the list is only people regarding Celsius and why the fuck BTC Inc. showed up. Unconfirmed. Or I'm trying to find the exact answer, but it is said that that section was because they at one point or another did business with us. And that is why we showed up on the list. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was drawing attention to. Yeah, I don't think we're owed money by them anymore. Because if we are, we ain't never seeing that again. Not a chance. I think. I think in terms of the you know creditor, the the priority of getting back to creditors. I think the World Economic Forum, unfortunately, is is probably higher than you guys on my list. What? Whoa! Hang on a second. Now, you would rather pay the WEF than Bitcoin Magazine? Get him off, Mr. Chow. Get him off. I wouldn't rather pay the WF than, than Bitcoin Magazine. I know that Klaus Schwab and his goons would be at my front door. If I had money to, to to the WF and Bitcoin Magazine, I paid BTC Inc. first. All right, look, you start. You're behind the eight ball now, man. Now you have the NSA and the WEF coming for your mom's attic. Like you better, you better buy your mama some flowers tonight, and apologize for the shitstorm that's to come. Joe, before we go over to the macro, because as you've mentioned, you guys do an excellent job of you know looking at Bitcoin through the lens of macro, which is so vitally important right now. Is there anything else we didn't get a chance to touch on regarding the time value of the Lightning Network? What you guys have sort of done here? Anything else you wanted to touch on? So really, I would just, I'll just end by basically like almost going verbatim on the abstract of this paper and why it's so important. Just to give basically, you know, a, a sound bite or, or whatever. But with the Lightning Network, with these formalized lending practices, just like liquidity marketplaces like Tarot, like Lightning Pool, like LN Router, these are going to facilitate greater economic activity that's native to Bitcoin. Right? You know, the Lightning Network has already positioned itself as the capital market layer for Bitcoin, offering a rate of return on invested capital, and then also offering a slew of options of financial instruments to attract collateral, right? And collateral is the precursor to, you know, this, this major wide sweeping capital market. And so you've got that. And then Tarot sort of brings this multi-asset functionality to the table that will broaden the scope of that capital and money market that's underwritten by Bitcoin, underwritten by the Lightning Network, right? So that is essentially what I'll leave it at. You know, this is very revolutionary stuff. The people and businesses that are making this happen, Amboss, Lightning, Lightning Labs, everybody else that's working on it. These are the people that are paving the way for the future. I'm just doing my best over the Bitcoin layer to 
bring that information to the public and sort of put it through a legacy financial theory lens so that traditional TradFi market participants can take a look at this, you know, and, and potentially start positioning capital into the Lightning Network and into Bitcoin. So when none of us can afford a Bitcoin because all of TradFi has officially bought up all the last cheap sats, we can point our fingers at you? No comment. Like truly excellent work over the Bitcoin layer. If you are not subscribed to their newsletter, Joe will tell you where to go at the end of this, but I highly, highly recommend this, this whole discussion. There's a paper that Joe and Nick have written up. If you have not yet had a chance to read it, please go ahead and do it. It's Monday and I'm fumbling over my words, but let's talk my favorite topic, which is macro. And specifically you guys at the Bitcoin layer spend so much more time focusing on bonds and interest rates as they seem to be telling everyone and everything, what the hell is going on? So what are you guys seeing? What are you guys paying attention to? And what is your definition of a recession? <laughs> yeah. So there are a couple of things we're monitoring, right? Again, we, we, we sort of use rates to lead all of our discussion, but there's also a few key economic releases this week that will, as you mentioned, sort of push us closer to a recession. As of right now, CPI, the expected CPI is 8.7% year on year. And that's releasing Wednesday. And so any miss on CPI whatsoever would mean, and a miss to the upside, that'd be very bad. That'll basically give the Fed the green light to absolutely decimate the economy in terms of continuing the rate hikes, pushing for a higher terminal rate, pushing for a terminal rate that's further out. Basically, before, before the labor report, there was consensus in the market. And there was it, I had, to a pretty large degree, that the Fed was going to have to wrap up relatively soon, specifically because, you know, taking a look at the two-year yield, that was coming down. And essentially, you know, the two-year yield leads Fed funds. So the two-year yield is forward policy rate expectations. And so when, you know, wherever that moves, the Fed essentially has to move. And two-year yield, that was coming down because presumably, you know, the rates market was telling the Fed, hey, it seems you've already tightened enough. But with the strong labor report, that basically is the Fed's first green light that they can continue hiking higher and you know potentially into Q1 2023 because the economy seems stronger than we anticipated. Obviously their mandate is to kill inflation. If the CPI print comes in hot, if it accelerates year on year, those are nightmare scenarios that would basically give the Fed full steam ahead. Their, their runway was already extended seeing that we have a strong labor market. You know, a CPI miss would give the Fed full steam ahead to just absolutely plow the markets and say, "All right, you know, 3.5% term on a rate in Q1. Now nah, we're going for 4%, right? Which obviously isn't a sustainable thing, but you know, CPI accelerating, that's their number one concern right now. And so all eyes are on CPI really on, on Wednesday. And, uh, and yeah, no, that's one of the big things we're watching right now, but also taking a look at rates. So as I mentioned, the two-year yield really leads the Fed. If you take a look at a graph of the two-year yield mapped against the federal funds rate, you can really see that when the two-year yield falls below the Fed funds rate, the Fed is forced to pause their cycle. And as of right now, there's about a 70, there is literally right now, I have it in front of me, a 71 basis point or 0.71% spread between the two-year yield and Fed funds. So the Fed still has 71 basis points of clearance to continue hiking. If all of a sudden the two-year yield were to drop, you know, pretty, pretty expeditiously, that could happen if, you know, again, if CPI prints the way we want it to, the two-year yield could begin its ascent back down to earth because that's the market basically saying, all right, Fed, you've done enough work. 
CPIs decelerating, then that would be sort of the case for the Fed pausing, you know, after September potentially. And then you know, we'll, we'll see what the two-year yield does. But essentially that's that's one of the big things we're monitoring. We're also monitoring the 10-year yield, which represents, you know, forward growth and inflation expectations. So if that's coming down, that's also the market signaling that they feel the Fed has done enough work to slow down the slow down inflation and slow down the economy. And that's that caught a bid in the recent couple of or that that's excuse me, that's begun to sell off again in the recent couple of weeks. And the yield on that has has bounced up from a low of two five, which we actually called over the Bitcoin layer. We called for two five a couple of months ago. It's bounced back up to two seven now. So Potentially, again, you know, and this is mirroring what the economy believes growth and inflation to be. You know, if we get a CPI miss, then you could, you know, probably see this climb a little bit higher. So we're also watching that. We're watching five-year, five-year inflation swaps, which are inflation expectations for six to ten years out. That's actually one of the instruments that the Fed watches to see if they're doing their job on fighting inflation. And those have started actually coming down in the last week. And so there are several different signals basically all going back to this same uh, road of, okay, if the economy is still rip roaring hot, you know, we got this jobs report, the economy is still rip roaring hot from a consumer price index inflation standpoint, then the Fed could, you know, really put on their hats and, and, and hunker down with the hikes. But that's, that's basically all we're watching right now. You know, the, the two-year yield is still trading relatively wide above Fed funds, but basically monitoring that, that is the most important thing to be monitoring. The relationship between the two-year treasury yield and the federal funds rate, that is our signal for when the Fed is going to pause. And then, you know, people are calling for a pivot, I believe too soon. They, they forget that there is an intermediary phase between a, a, a hike cycle and a pivot, and that is a pause. And chances are, you know, if things play out as we believe, or as, as I believe rather, I don't want to put words in Nick's mouth, but we, we might be looking at a pause sooner than most think. I think I think people are conflating a pause and a pivot. A pause is, is far more likely than, than than a pivot would be. If we have this massive, awful deflationary spike, you know, asset prices get sent through the floor, yeah, you'd get a pivot. But if the economy slows down like the Fed wants it to, you get a pause and you normalize around wherever we are now, right? Wherever they end up at like, you know, two, seven, five or 3%. Long-winded, but that's essentially what we're looking at. Well, you know, what my personal market expectations are moving into CPI on Wednesday, all eyes on CPI. All eyes on, on the CPI, which will come out on Wednesday. We saw the jobs report. We had a long discussion with you as well, Joe, on Friday that these numbers may look good on paper or at initial glance, but could actually be a lot worse than we're anticipating. So we have the jobs reports, we got CPI, PPI, all that nonsense that they're going to feed us. Is there any other economic indicator that you think can, or you're paying attention to that will impact the Fed's decision-making? Yes. So they look at the spread between the three month and 10 year yield. That's the last, literally last rate I'll mention, because I know a lot of people find it tiresome, but they watch, the Fed watches five year, five year inflation swaps, because that's forward inflation expectations, six to 10 years out. And they watch the spread between the three month treasury bill and the 10 year treasury note, right? So that's what they watch. Um, basically, if we watch the three month 10, because we know the Fed watches these things, they may not they may not look out further along the curve, which they should, because they could pretend to prevent a lot of catastrophe if they looked at the five-year inverting with the 10-year, but they don't. They that is the funniest thing you have ever said. You mean to tell me you think it would be helpful if the Federal Reserve did their job? I think it'd be really helpful. They're, I mean, they're, they're not even remotely prescient and they don't that's try funny. to be. They really don't. He's single, ladies. For the one girl that's out there listening, Joe Consorti is single, lives in his mother's attic. I live in my mother's at Q. I think that's that's giving the show a little bit too much. I don't know if there are any girls listening. But anyway, a couple of other things to look at. 
is oh gosh, what was I going to say? Blah 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 blah. Oh gosh. Well, you've got PMIs, obviously. Good lord. I was three gonna... tens. The three tens are inverted. Yes, 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 yes. So three tens are, are 21 basis points away from inverting. That will be a huge other signal that the Fed has gone too far. You know, the, the Fed would, would basically at this point, they're being pro-cyclical. So the Fed's supposed to be counter-cyclical, right? During these huge boom phases, they're supposed to tighten the reins on the, the economic horses and slow us down a little bit. But instead, over the last two years, they decided to continue easing well, well through all of this. And then so, you know, when we're in a boom phase, they ease. And now that we're slowly going into a bust phase, you know, they're they're tightening. So the Fed is being pro-cyclical, cyclical. I was going to say, oh, about jobs report. Yes, the jobs report. So the labor report, that was, it, it could be a bit misleading. So non-farm payrolls, that, you know, a, a massive beat. It is a massive beat, but it could be somewhat misleading. You want to be watching more leading indicators there, which would be jobless claims, right? So initial jobless claims, watching those. As those tick up, as those continue ticking up, that's basically what you want to watch, right? So there is like a nightmare, and this is what I wanted to say. So there's a nightmare scenario where the Fed takes a look at non-farm payrolls and uses that as its sole barometer to say, the economy is red hot right now. Let's let's continue hiking. 75 basis points is probable in September. Even if we didn't have a red hot labor market, 75 basis points would still probably be, the, be what we're getting. But we basically know at this point that 75 basis points, according to the Fed Funds Futures Curve, which is really never wrong when we're this close to a meeting, is pricing in 75 basis points. But there's a nightmare scenario where the Fed, you know, CPI comes in hot and they take a look at, or even disregarding CPI, they use the non-farm payrolls meeting as their sole barometer to say, look, the, the, the economy is doing great. Let's do another 75. Let's get, and then they increase their terminal rate. They push out when their terminal rate is going to be. So they go, you know, they go harder and longer. And then, uh-oh, you know, the non-farm payrolls beat was a fluke. As it turns out, there's an obscene amount of jobless claims and you just made money way more expensive than you should have, Jerome Powell. And then that sends markets to the floor, massive deflationary bust. That is a potential scenario. That's like a nightmare scenario. And I think that could be made potentially even worse if we have a CPI miss and the Fed is even more emboldened to hike beyond what the market can take. Because if this CPI is supply side driven, which I strongly believe that it is, right? We seized up supply chains for two straight years and we st we're still doing it. If this CPI is supply driven and the Fed is rapidly incre increasing the cost of money, and if the labor market is less strong than the Fed believes and they're rapidly increasing the price of money, then you could have this crazy deflationary bust because the Fed tightened way too much when in reality, the, the economy was already self-correcting in the other direction. So a lot of different fun scenarios to play out, but really watching CPI, watching twos, tens, twos, Fed funds, and three-month tens and five-year five-year five five year inflation swaps, that's basically where eyes are right now, as well as how's the consumer doing. So looking at UMish consumer sentiment, looking at the small business optimism index, these are sort of all the things that we use to paint the, the clearest picture. We don't use too many beyond that because if you use literally a million indicators, you're painting a more muddled picture than a clear picture. Simplicity is really key if you want to have like a concise and, and pretty accurate picture of what's going on. But that's the outlook for the next next couple of months. Before I let you go and before I just want to remind everyone in the audience, we will be joined in just a moment by Dylan with by the Bitcoin Magazine Pro will be joining us, Dylan LeClaire, Sam Rule, in about like a few minutes. So hang tight. I'm not going to let Joe go away because I have one more question for him. If you are not yet subscribed to our channel, just press that button right there. I'm finally figuring this out. All the way down there, just press it. 
press the subscribe button. We'll really appreciate it. If we get up to 100 likes while we are live, we'll drop some stats on, over in the YouTube chat. Joe, one thing that you said stood out to me, and I want to ask this final question. Inflation has two causes, supply and demand. Yeah. I have personally felt like the root of inflation, you can equate these things not necessarily equally. I would say it's probably 75% demand-driven, 25% supply-side-driven. You said that you feel like supply has a heavier hand in inflation. I'm curious what, how you would, what would your percentage be for each allocation to, or each's allocation towards inflation? Yeah. So I, instead of talking like allocations, I'll talk like probabilities. You saw a lot of key metrics like new orders seizing up over the last couple of years, like completely seizing up. Obviously new orders are cyclical. Right. So similar to commodity prices, like, you know, lumber is very cyclical, you know, they ebb and flow sort of in this sawtooth pattern. You saw new orders really, really take a huge hit. And as a function of that, you know, consumers were still spending because they had a whole lot of credit drives prices up. Right. A lot of it is supply shock driven, I believe, because of that. So I believe like probability wise, you know, I'm assigning probably 70 percent supply driven inflation versus, you know, 30 percent. This this, you know, consumer price inflation index inflation. And then you know thirty percent of it can be uh, ascribed to, to demand side inflation. But yeah, no, but the, your your rationale for the supply side of the equation is the fact that demand was so high that it actually took away supply, and then because we weren't manufacturing supply, that increased demand fucked over supply. Yeah, so obviously with the monetary and fiscal easing that we had, people had more readily like disposable income. But also, I you know I wouldn't blame the consumer. I think the majority of it was caused to these huge exogenous supply shocks that we experienced over the last two years. Okay, this will probably be a discussion we pick up most likely in the Twitter sphere. But Joe, where can people know what the heck you're doing? What the heck the Bitcoin layer is doing? Stay up to date with it, all your guys's research. For sure. So I'm on Twitter at Joe Consorti at first name, last name, no space in between, uh, as you see on screen, and subscribe to the bitcoinlayer.substack. And once again, the bitcoinlayer.substack.com. We have a free tier. We do free a free market update every single Saturday, as well as two paid posts that you won't want to miss covering everything coin macro and rates. Thank you so much, man. This was fantastic. Absolutely. Go to Thanks for after my, my terrible internet the last time. Yeah, this is light years better. I'm so grateful that Nick paid you a decent enough wage so you can go plug into the 7-Eleven internet downstairs. I'm going to run to the restroom. We're going to be joined in just a moment with Dylan and Sam. I think P has some very smart words that everyone should listen to and do everything he says. Do not fuck this up, P. Do not fuck this up. Oh, God. Roll the tape. I got to pee. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. 